This is RDQI. Hey, Dave. Do you like coffee? (laughs) I wonder where this is going, but I think uh, we both probably know the answer pretty well. I I don't just like coffee. I love coffee. Yeah, I mean, as a a bait question, because I already knew that. And actually, honestly, I think you're probably one of the people who's most responsible for me loving coffee. Really? That seems backwards <laughs> well okay so let me put it this way when i was growing up i would you know i'd watch my mom make coffee in the morning mm-hmm. and i would see the final product and i never tasted it at that age because um you know it's not a good idea to have ca- caffeine at that young age really and a lot of other reasons and to me it just looked like a milkshake like a chocolate caramel milkshake so the first <laughs> time i actually tried coffee i was like what is this thin, bitter, disgusting liquid? <laughs> like, I don't like this at all. And then, and this is the real paradox of who I am in a weird way. And then you introduced me to espresso. And espresso, I was like, oh, yeah, I like coffee. It was like <laughs> a thick, pungent, in your face, still bitter, but could be sweet. And so espresso was my entry point to coffee, which is, I think, probably a little abnormal, maybe, but it doesn't really yeah. much matter. Um, yeah, so that's what got me into coffee, I think, was espresso, actually. Um, hmm. Right, funny story, I, huh? Yeah, I, I think m- mine might be a little bit more normal in that I always loved the smell of coffee. I remember, you sure. know, like smelling it, brewing, my mom making it, and thinking, like, oh, God, that smells so good. And then always being baffled with how horrible it tasted. Um <laughs> And then I, you know, I just, I got into coffee with like tons and tons of coffee creamer. And then pretty soon afterwards, I just, I don't know. I just, I don't know what it was, but I think I just decided like, I want to drink black coffee. And then, you know, maybe a year later, I just absolutely loved the taste of black coffee and espresso Mm. and you know, all that's kind of gone from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly started to appreciate uh, coffee beyond flavor, and that's probably why I started to like the flavor when it could help me stay awake and study and write papers in college. That's pretty much what I was using it for. Um, yeah. Yeah, Portland Brew in Nashville, if it's still there, oh, it's still there, but go to the one in 12 South. That's where that's where Ryan fell in love with coffee. <laughs> um, well, so I asked, because obviously I knew the answer to that question. Like, <clears throat> it was pretty clear, but there's some current events going on right now that I think are kind of a fascinating backdrop to talk about coffee and coffee production in particular. Mainly what I'm talking about is uh, the recent frost in Brazil that affected, uh, well, we don't we don't really know the effects yet, actually, but has affected a large crop in the Minas Gerais region, uh, Minas Gerais. My Portuguese is terrible. I'm sure it's... I think it's Minas Gerais. Minas Gerais. Let's go with that. Um, so Minas Gerais is like north of Sao Paulo and like west and north of Rio for reference. Uh, mm-hmm. It's inland. It's a highland country, which is important. You need a certain elevation to grow Arabica coffee beans. And again, just as a reminder, there's Arabica coffee beans. There's Robusta coffee beans. I mean, there's like hundreds more, but those are the only two humans tend to cultivate for commercial purposes. Um, Arabica is the high quality stuff that most people drink and Robusta is pretty it's not that great. It doesn't taste great. 
Um, having said that, it does have way more caffeine, so some companies will blend the two together to kind of get a desired effect. Usually in the U.S., you're going to get 100% Arabica. Um, yeah, I guess dumb question. Like, have I ever had Robusta in like the last year? Would I have ever had it? Probably in a, in a blend of something, maybe. Uh, like a lot yeah. of Italian espresso blends, like Ili, Nescafe, things like that, they'll have a little bit of mm. Robusta in them to huh, okay. kind of balance in the, you know, give it a little extra punch, you know, that that caffeine kick. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if you're roasting your coffee very dark, because the darker you roast your coffee, the more caffeine you cook off. So you yeah. can kind of make up for it that way. Um, but in large part, if you're going to a craft coffee shop in the U.S., for sure, you're not getting Robusta. Um hmm. Tip, yeah, that's the case. Um, so in Minas, uh, <laughs> Minas Gerais, in Minas Gerais, there is uh, it's winter for them right now, and they just had a frost that attacked, or attacked. Uh, I'm sure the frost isn't a malignant force, but in this case, it feels malignant. Um, it has affected uh, this region, and just to give you perspective, this region produces 50% of Brazil's coffee output. And I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think Brazil produces something like 80% of Arabica beans in the world. Seven, <laughs> what? 70%? Really? Oh, yeah. It's immense. It's Brazil's the powerhouse in terms huh. of production. Um, it's been that way since, for a long time, really, since Italian immigrants showed up in Brazil in the 1850s, I think is when... I guess, I guess it doesn't really feel that way because, like, if I, you know, when I'm buying coffee... Um, or going to a coffee shop, you know, I pay attention to regions, but I feel like, you know, Ethiopia is on offer just as much as Colombia or Brazil. I even think like Brazil single origin is less common than a Colombia or an Indonesia or, a, you know, Ethiopia, something like that. Yeah, you're, you're correct. I think that's changing. Um, well, I know that's changing, you know, from my days in the coffee company who will remain mm-hmm. unnamed, but, uh, it definitely is changing. Part of it is it was um, up until 1990, all Brazilian coffee production was controlled by an organization. Um, every aspect of it, basically. So hmm. post 90s, that's when, uh, or sorry, during the 90s, that's when this organization was disbanded. And all of a sudden, Brazil was really open to the forces of a free market economy. And that kind of wreaked havoc for a little bit, as you might expect, in an industry that's been regulated. And then all of a sudden, the doors are just wide open. Um, It started to stabilize in 2005-ish time period. That's off the top of my head, but in the 2000s, early 2000s. And then they've certainly regained their, um, their mojo, if you will, and are producing like no one's business. Um, yeah. And part, a big part of it as far as, and this is, um, I don't know this for fact, but this is something I know as an anecdote. A lot of high-end Brazilian coffees are actually going to China um, because I guess there's a class of Chinese citizens who are willing to pay higher prices for coffee. So, hmm. you know, free market, that ten, tends to be how that kind of works. Um, yeah, in general, I mean, the, Obviously, I'm glazing over a lot of the nuance of how the coffee industry actually works on the green coffee side. Green coffee mean unroasted coffee. Mm. Um, But that's a digression. Really, what I think is interesting is the dynamics at play when the world's largest producer of coffee and the the region inside of that country that produces the most coffee, what happens when their crops take a huge hit? And again, we don't really know the extent of how it's going to affect. But what, I mean, 
like no one knows, but what is going to happen with, with all of this, do you think? It's such an interesting problem because it's it's a problem that I think we're going to see more and more of and that we have seen for you know, with other, with other crops. Right. So I think it was last summer, um, that there was, I forget exactly what it was, but there was an issue with the avocado production and avocado prices just spiked across the U S because there was less of a supply and thus, you know, mm-hmm. the demand remains constant. It jacks up the prices. Um, but avocado is also one of those things that like we all claim to love, but like I wouldn't really notice if I could never have an avocado again, <laughs> you know. <Okay. laughs> Fair it's enough. not, yeah. it's not the you know be all end all. Like avocado prices were up, I just didn't really buy avocados. I don't need them. Uh, that's not so with coffee. <laughs> it's a <laughs> little know? different, yeah. It's a little different, and there is a much much bigger market for coffee. Um, you know, avocado is similar where it can only be grown in specific places, but coffee, same thing. Like coffee can only be grown, you know, within, I think what, 20 to 30 degrees of the equator, North, North or South. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have things like, you know, climate change happening in those areas and, and I think it's, you know, it's, it sometimes is hard to see the direct impact of things like climate change in the Northern hemisphere, you know, when we, you see the climate maybe fluctuating and severe weather happening more frequently, but it's, it's not as visceral as it is, you know, in, in some of these coffee producing regions, but, but already yeah. I know, and I was reading about uh, Colombia and how, you know, within the last 10 years, they've had to move entire crops of uh, entire fields of coffee up, you know, so, so coffees tend to be grown in that area, at least on mountainsides and hillsides because mm-hmm. of like the temperature regulation. They've had to move it up because it's too hot now where they used to actually grow these coffee fields. So it's like a tangible, measurable impact of the climate changing. Um, and I think, you know, what's happening in Brazil obviously is something completely different. You're talking about frost killing coffee. Um, but you can see in, in both instances, the impact of, of change in climate on relatively stable climactic or historically stable climactic areas, climactic areas. That doesn't sound right. It works for me though. (laughs) Um, you know, is, is, can cause some devastating effects. And in Colombia, they were able to just move them north. So you didn't really see an impact of the coffee supply, but in Brazil, you're talking about a massive, you know, massive hit to the coffee supply. Um, and if that's true that Brazil produces, you know, 80% of the beans, you're going to see some massive, impacts to that you know coffee is just this ubiquitous the the demand is absurd you know every mm-hmm. country in the world has a coffee drinking i don't want to say culture that's maybe too strong but but a demand for coffee mm-hmm. oh yeah um so any impact any major impact to a supply is going to affect global supply chains i you know the, the first impact of that would obviously be a price increase but you know, which we're already seeing. Hap- the, yeah, the coffee futures jumped to uh, above two dollars for the first time in a while. Uh, it had been hanging around between like eighty-five and ninety-five cents for I think about the past decade, maybe. That's off the yeah. cuff, but and so it's a pretty big jump in coffee futures that we're already seeing, and we don't even know what the effects of the frost are going to be yet, which we'll get into later. I think. 
I think there's there's uncertainty certainly, but there's also there's also instances of major crop impacts that were subverted by kind of human ingenuity, right? So think about it, um, in the 19th century, there was a virus in Europe that affected wine uh, wine grapes called the phylloxera virus. And this thing had basically was, was close to wiping out almost all of the vines in continental Europe. I mean, it was mm-hmm. that pervasive. And what they did was take American rootstock from a from a wine grape that from a slightly different genus of a wine grape. Um, so it's not, you know, exactly the same species. And they took those those rootstocks and they grafted European wine varietals onto American rootstocks and replaced, you know, thousands, millions of acres of wine grapes with these new American rootstocks. So today, uh, the, the phylloxera virus essentially wiped out all of the old European rootstocks. So any wine grape grown in Europe today has American rootstock. Like I, it's, I did not know that. Yeah, it, every every one of them. So can we still, um, do we still call them old world wines if they're all grafted onto new world rootstock? I mean, apparently, and I, you know, there's no way that you or I could know this because it was before our lifetime, but apparently you take a Cabernet Sauvignon grape, you graft it onto an American rootstock. It does not change the, the inherent taste and genetics of the fruit of the plant. It just provides a, you know, different channel for it to get nutrients in the first place. All right. I mean, sounds good to me, I guess. That's actually interesting because that kind of, that cross correlates with coffee too because another another problem that the coffee industry is facing on the you know the agricultural side is that the risk of extinction of uh, coffee species is growing incredibly high um so like i said you know robusta and arabica coffees those are the ones we consume um having said that there are i think it's 124 different varieties of coffee uh 124 wild coffee species there we go really mm-hmm. and it's really important that we maintain wild coffee species for this very reason i mean we we interbreed wild with arabica to keep it resistant to disease pests you name it uh, leaf rust is a pretty common one um in the coffee world it, it it sounds like what it looks like i mean basically your coffee leaves just turn rust colored around the edges and then die and obviously that's usually not very good for any plant um, mm. but it's also indicative of a bigger problem. So we need the wild species. We need the American rootstock to make a really crude analogy to survive or to keep this plant alive, at least as we know it. And yet I think it's like, oh, let me make sure I get this right. 75 of these 124 coffee species are at risk of extinction right now. Wow. Uh, and this was from a study published in 2019 by the Wharton Business School. So I'm going to trust them on that one. They're a pretty re- reliable name. Extinction due to due to climate issues, ex- extinction due to, you know, mostly climate. Climate is the is kind of the kind of the hallmark. So global warming is a pretty um, whether or not you believe it exists, coffee farmers will tell you 100% it is affecting their livelihoods. Um, so, and 
as you discussed, as we brought up, that you, we literally had to move, and by we I mean humanity had to move the elevation of coffee plants to keep them growing, right? Um, and yeah. you pair that with other effects that you know are pretty en- endemic uh, deforestation, which of course I think kind of feeds into the global warming. Um, but also, y- you need for anyways. We don't need to get into forestry. Um, and then of course you have disease and pests. You know, standard stuff that's been around forever. So if we lose the ability, if we if we lost sixty percent, let's say in the next fifty years, we lost sixty percent of wild coffee species, that probably wouldn't like sink the boat on us having Arabica coffee. Having said that, if sixty percent of wild coffee species went extinct because of global warming, deforestation, etc., uh, I mean, what chances Arabica really have? Um, would be my question. But yeah, it's a really key. I I didn't realize until doing a little digging into this for this episode, but I didn't realize how important the genetic diversity of wild species is so integral to maintaining our current species and therefore our current coffee production. Yep. Yeah, that's that's something that's always bothered me in a lot of different avenues, right? So, like, the way, you know, there's always external forces that change, right? I mean, you know, the and the climate on Earth has changed, you know, throughout geological history. You know, right now we we believe it's being exacerbated by you know human fossil fuel consumption. Um, but but regardless, like it it is it moves up and down. But but species through evolution adapt to those different changes. But there are certain things plants and animals that we sort of kept we, we sort of keep in an evolutionary evolutionarily frozen period so th- think about the apple right like the the honey crisp apple those you know typically like you take a you know my, my tomato plants get a little bit more and more adopted to my climate every single year because I grow tomatoes I take the seeds from the best tomatoes that I grow and I use those to plant next year so it is a true second generation of that crop and it, mm, okay. it you know slowly and slowly is adapting to the climate in which I have it um, you know and I and I've seen that over the three or four years that I've had this garden here, you know, I plant a species that I really like the taste of, but it doesn't do quite well. And then I plant it again and it does a little bit better next year. It does a little bit better next year. Um, we don't plant apple seeds. If you take a seed from an apple, you plant it in the ground and wait 20 years for it to go grow into a tree. It will produce fruit that tastes terrible. <laughs> the only reason we keep the, the flavors of apples that we like is we take, we take basically cuttings from, apple trees we graft them onto rootstock again and we plant the grafted trees to produce more apple trees that's not generational that's taking the exact dna from that tree and just propagating another tree with the exact same dna so if that honey crisp apple was and i don't know this but i mean let's say a hundred years ago that apple has not been able to evolve in a hundred years it is exactly the same and thus we see so many problems with like fruit trees because most fruit trees are fruit trees are propagated in this way because the seeds won't really grow sure. very true. Like they won't grow with the same um, 
characteristics that we want. Bananas are the classic example, right? Yeah, and so like you know they have no they like they they can't adapt to diseases. They can't adapt to pests. They can't adapt to anything. So you have to really baby these trees so much because like they're so fragile. They don't have any of this, you know, resistance that they would have if they were continued, you know, allowed to continue their genetic lines. Right. Which is why, again, the wild plants are so key to be able to interbreed and produce new plants. Now, obviously I don't know much about the apple business, but I do know a decent amount of uh, detail on the coffee business. And, What's what's kind of scary about the the frost situation is, a frost in the tropics is kind of weird. Um, I mean, I'm not terribly familiar with this region. I've never been to Brazil. I wouldn't know. And it is their winter time, right? It's not like, it's <laughs> they're in the southern hemisphere, right? Um, but part of it is so. There's a couple of factors at play that really make this a very dynamic situation. It makes it kind of like no one really knows what's going to happen. First off is this, uh, coffee plants take a couple years to to grow from basically, not rootstock, from a seedling into an actual mature harvestable plant. It's going to take a couple of years, right? And another interesting thing about coffee plants is that they actually have an off year and an on year. So this year is technically the 2021 harvest will be an off year in Brazil. There's just going to be lower output, basically. It's just a fact of how plants, how the coffee plant behaves. I'll have a big crop and then a small crop the next year. Um, so everyone was kind of expecting a smaller crop this year already, right? In fact, I think mm-hmm. 2020 was a record-breaking crop in Brazil, if I remember correctly. Um, mm. So everyone's already expecting this to be lower. Um, and the damage, we don't know what it is yet. I mean, I was just reading about an agronomist in uh, one of the big plantations down there who was like flying over his fields and it's just like, I, it, we still can't even tell how how damaging this all really is. But, and that he's talking about the established harvestable fields. But he mentioned that like basically their seedlings are gone. That's it. (laughs) There's no no more. So they're going to have to redo (laughs) all of that work, right? And then it'll take years before those plants can become um, producible. So there's a huge interruption in the supply chain, if you will. Um, Yeah. And who knows, maybe... The frost isn't quite as damaging to the plants, and we only lose, I don't know, 15 to 20% of the yield this year, as opposed to something like higher, like 33 to 50%, which some people have floated, which I don't know where they get those numbers, so don't even quote me on that. Um, so that it's multifaceted. It's not just that it's going to affect us this year. It's not just that coffee futures have already gone up, uh, I think almost you know 100% basically, since this frost. Um, is that subsequent years are also going to be impaired. And then furthermore, I mean, and this isn't specific to Brazil, because Brazil has a much different dynamic than a lot of the Central American producers, such as Guatemala, Panama, Nicaragua. Um, Mm -hmm. But there becomes a pretty distinct, um, how should I put this? The calculus that a farmer has to make, right, is how to best provide for them and their own through their work, right? That's probably the first thing they're thinking of, taking care of themselves and their people. If growing coffee becomes so unpredictable and so hard to maintain, and the coffee's a commodity, so like they don't even really have control of pricing that much, to be honest with you. Yeah. Then what then the farmer's gonna choose to grow something different. And I do know this for a fact that there is a major concern, especially in Guatemala and Nicaragua, that that production has gone from hard to produce products 
such as coffee into easier to produce products with a much higher yield and much higher benefit, such as maybe like, I don't know, coca leaves or poppy seeds, <laughs> you name it. Um, so there's there's a really nasty interplay here of how a major industry that supplies the world, with, I think the coffee industry is like, oh, wait, let me get this right. Wharton says it's a $70 billion industry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not, you know, no big deal. Um, which I actually looked this up. The I think the GDP of Guatemala itself is $71 billion. <laughs> Wow. Right? Something like that? Okay. So to put it in a little bit of perspective, right? <laughs> Coffee is bigger than Guatemala. Um <laughs> So you can see how, like, because most coffee is really is handled by small farms. It's usually not done in large plantations style, especially in Central America. Um, yeah. And even in Brazil, for the most part, I think it's relatively small producers typically. Um, so these aren't like giant corporations that have ways to, you know, balance their books and pad a loss here and increase a margin there. It's a very, very thin business. Um, I mean, it can be great, obviously, but it can also have its downside. And if it's going to be increasingly volatile, are people going to keep planting coffee is the other question. And I think yeah. they, they will. It just, you know, it's going to be region by region. That decision is going to be handled very differently. Yeah, I think they will because, you know, like we're talking about the the elasticity of demand um, and not a perfect analogy, but you know, an, av an avocado to me is, has very elastic demand, right? So if the price increases, then the demand is going to decrease. Like I like guacamole, but I don't, I'm not going to pay $15 for an avocado to make guacamole. Sure. Like I just will do without, yep. um, coffee on the other hand, prices increase. I mean, you're not going to see much impacted demand at all, right? It's it's you know it's it's sort of like fuel, where you know fuel demand does not drop as gas prices go up because people might complain about it, but they still need it. Like there's there's some kind of impact, but but not a ton. You know, people may drink less coffee, but people won't stop, right? You know, because like how many people have a have a, have a physiological dependence on coffee right now? Mm -hmm. You know, I actually, um, I just gave up coffee, um, which I do periodically just to like remind myself that I don't totally need it. <laughs> and um, to remind yourself how addicted you are to it. <laughs> At least that's why I do it. I know I'm addicted to it. I, I just do it because I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's healthy to, to like cycle things. Um, anything, you know, just to keep, keep life little different. Keep your mind and your brain on your toes. Yeah, variety is the spice of life, of course. Right. But it is harder every year to give up coffee. And, and like, at this point, it's like four or five days where, you know, day one and like day two to three are miserable. Like, I've, I feel so horrible. And then, you know, four or five, I still kind of feel like, oh, I don't know about this. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. And... It, you know, so, so, but like, I'm, I'm kind of choosing to do that and it's hard. It's really hard. So people are going to complain about price hikes, but they're probably still going to pay it for their, you know, their, their coffee that they need. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and really quick, just to butt in, I was reading a uh, Starbucks had an earning, uh, an earnings call recently, I believe. And it, yeah. they announced on it, they have like 13 months of green coffee in supply in warehouse already. 
so basically there was the article I was reading is like all right, coffee prices are going up. Is Starbucks going to be more expensive? And it seems like Starbucks has a handle on the situation to where we're not going to see dramatic price increases at the world's largest coffee shop. Um, having said that, it's only, what, just over a year of production available? You know, I mean, yeah. how many how many times can this happen before Starbucks is like, ooh, actually, we're in trouble? Um, which Starbucks, well, even, right. they own their own plantation in Guatemala almost, I think explicitly to study how to combat the changing of our climate um because hmm. obviously yeah i mean it's it's schultz's before he left officially like it was his big thing it was like climate change is the biggest thing that's going to affect the quality and availability of coffee so they went yeah. in into like they should like a in my opinion like a industry leader should they're taking footing the bill to try to figure it out hmm yeah, it's 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 scary. It's good that you know a company like Starbucks has at least like a 12, 13 month lead time. Because um, I know um, I don't know if you've ever watched the series Cooked with uh, oh yeah it's mm-hmm. adapted from Michael Pollan's book Cooked, but he's yep. you know narr- narrating most of it. But in the episode on grain, he talks about that you know the world's grain supply is only like two to three months of. Um, so, so shocks to the system now with grain, grain can be grown in a lot more places. Yeah. Um, and it's actual sustenance, you know, coffee isn't sustenance. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, when the issue, like Ukraine grows a lot of wheat, but when Ukraine had the, you know, the issues in 2014, when, um, you know, Russia annexed, uh, Crimea, um, they like, they, they, really destroyed their grain production, but then they were able to like, you know, ship grain from Australia and from China to like, to kind of compensate. Right. Um, but, but coffee doesn't really have that. Like you have some issue, you know, in Brazil, if we see the impacts of like, let's just throw out a number and say 50% of the world's coffee production for 2020, even if it, you know, is two years down the line that it's felt like that's going to be felt. We don't have anywhere else to, to pull that, you know, there's no, there's really very little slack in the system. There might be lead time slack, sure. but there's, you know, that, that bill is going to come due and it's not going to be able to be, you know, buffeted by any, anywhere else just because of the limited geographic area that coffee can be grown. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it is very limited. I mean, Arabica, I think it has to be at least 1200 meters above sea level before you can grow it, um, which is pretty pretty high up there you know um there wouldn't be many regions in the u.s if it were in the tropics that could even grow coffee you know and when you pair that yeah we pair the elevation with the tropical climate it needs because it needs a certain amount of humidity etc um it also needs a nice cooling and warming cycle i mean there's a lot of things that coffee needs at least the coffee we like to drink it needs and as that those spaces kind of evaporate if you'll borrow if you'll allow me to borrow that term coffee itself could start to evaporate as we know it at least now there's two there's two solutions to the problem and there's two or there's two ways to solve the problem right and you have people working on both you have either a you know let's combat climate change so that we can continue to grow where we're growing or let's work on innovative solutions to be able to grow coffee in a different environment um you know, I, I there's a couple of uh, gardener channels that I follow, and they grow coffee in greenhouses in places like Michigan. <laughs> um, 
Now, obviously, these are like small kind of homesteading, air, you know, coffee production. But a lot of this is in response to the writing on the wall. You know, it's it's funny. It, I you know, I'm not making a judgment on on the authenticity of climate change or not. But it to me, it says something when uh, you know, find me a farmer that tells you that climate change isn't happening. Right, and I will <laughs> change my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, okay. Exactly. Yeah. You know, anyway. You and I live and work from home or an office, basically. We don't really see much of the outside world, nor do we directly interact with it a ton, besides you and your garden. I'm so jealous of your garden, but <laughs> I digress. Um, but hydroponics is, you know, it's, it's real technology. So I actually, it, it, after we had talked about our organic farming episode a while back um, and, and talked about hydroponics, I, it's something that I never really got into, but I decided to just kind of get down the rabbit hole of looking into it. And I actually bought a little hydroponic kit um, and I was growing some herbs. And so number one, these herbs grew so fast. And number two, like I, I grew some basil and I've never, I've never felt thicker basil leaves before. Interesting. Because this hydroponic system is set up to basically, you know, deliver everything the plant needs in the exact quantities that it that it needs. Right, right, right. right. There's no variability, and like, uh, man, there's no, there's no arguing that this is the healthiest plant I've ever seen in my entire life. What's the energy consumption like on that though? Well, well, that's the problem. Is you know, my little hydroponic kit is you know like not going to break the bank but it also doesn't really produce much to do it at a you know have at scale it's it's not like you know i i've i've read a lot of studies on this and and it just it's not viable at this point in time like we it's not economically viable Mm. it's too energy too energy uh yeah it consumes um, too much energy but 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 like the technology is there you know it's pretty amazing that we are able to determine you know everything the plant needs and to grow it without soil and like, you know, the exact optimal light, um, the exact optimal ambient temperature, the, you know, optimal nutrient factor. Yeah. yeah, All that good stuff. So people are working on that. And it's an interesting question because very few people are working on both sides of that equation. But I think I, I just can't see that solving the problem, the indoor method, because I think Minister Rice is uh, 10,000 square kilometers of mm-hmm. production. I mean, how are you going to reproduce that unless you do it outside and use the sun as your energy source? I guess we really quick, we should probably I should specify. I don't think coffee itself is going to disappear. Arabica coffee might in our lifetime or at least become so expensive that you have to be quite wealthy to enjoy that treat. Robusta coffee grows practically at sea level. <laughs> it grows really easily. So it's not like coffee itself is going away. What we think of as coffee now and have thought of as coffee pretty much the entirety of human humanity's existence, I think that's what's at stake. You know, kind of like everything, it seems like right now in, in, in this year, 2021, just seems like everything's at, you know, up in the air at the moment. Yeah, but I, just because we can't imagine a future where we can grow coffee indoors at scale now does not mean it, it can never happen. Sure. Okay. That's true. You know, like very smart people are working on technology to make this cheaper, more efficient. And, you know, they only do so because they see a future where this can be done. 
Right. Right, right. What's the motivation otherwise? Yeah. But I think the more important question is, you know, as a, so, so not just in coffee, but in agriculture and, you know, everything where, where climate could impact, you know, food production. Is the solution to tackle climate change itself or is the solution to assume climate change as inevitable and find other ways around it? (laughs) 